Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Bike Karma podcast. Stories about all kinds of people and all kinds of bicycles. I'm your host, Tom Brown. We're going to have stories from around the world today. From Singapore, we talked to Raymond Yo about the 30,000-ish bikes in Singapore that are to share. We talked to Joe Sullivan about collecting and refurbishing Westfield Columbia's from the golden age of bicycles made in America. We talked to John Diamond about bringing a bike shop back to Main Street, USA. And we talked to the unnamed ferryman at the oldest ferry in the country. And despite what Chris DeBerg told us way back in the 80s, the price is fixed and you do have to pay before you get to the other side. All this and more in today's Bike Karma podcast. I appreciate you coming along with me for the ride. Let's roll out. So I'm going to tell you a secret, which you probably wouldn't expect to hear from somebody hosting a bicycle podcast, but the fact is, I never really liked Schwinn's. When I was a kid, the reason was that we couldn't afford them. They were at the bike store. They were like double to triple the price of the bikes at the department store. So like a kid does, I kind of said, well, I didn't want one anyway. As an adult working on them, I still had that bias in my background when I started learning how to fix bikes. And then I found a new reason not to like them, which was all the different proprietary parts. Honestly, there weren't a lot of them, but the tires were. So if you ever tried to buy a tire, you know how screwy tire sizes are. Well, Schwinn had their own screwy tire sizes on top of the other screwy tire sizes. And then when I went to the swap meets and the Schwinns were still way out of my prize league. You know, the Phantoms and the Jaguars and the Crate Bikes. So with the podcast like Bike Karma, I kind of had to come around and figure out what that was all about. Well, first, I had to admit they were pretty damn fine looking bikes. And from reading No Hands, The Rise and Fall of the Schwinn Bicycle Company by Judith Crown and Glenn Coleman, I found out that they were responsible for actually raising the bar on a lot of really substandard made in America bike parts that were pretty much junk. So they were a game changer, and you have to admire them for that. But this story isn't about Schwinn's. It's about another brand that was always eclipsed by Schwinn. Schwinn made balloon tire bikes famous. And those balloon tire tank bikes, those 1950s big motorcycle looking bikes that were heavy but durable and fun as heck. The same ones that people like Joe Breeze and Gary Fisher took up to the mountains in Marin County and bombed down the hills. Those early mountain biker repackers were like consumer reports, checking out old bicycle frames and seeing which ones were the highest quality. And Schwinn often came up on top. But another brand that was always waiting in the wings were the Westfield Columbias. The bad news for collectors of Westfield Columbias made in Westfield, Massachusetts, is that they never quite got to the popularity and fame of the Schwinn counterparts. They never commanded the super high dollar prices because they just, they weren't as high quality, to be honest. The good news is, is that they were a lot more affordable to collect. And like Schwinn, they had many iconic and beautiful models made over their long history. So let's talk to my friend Joe Sullivan, who's a big Westie fan, about Westfield Columbia Bicycles. 
so your house has a reputation in the neighborhood. Yes, it does. My house is the house where you find the BB guns, the firecrackers, and the 10-inch chainsaw. So kids don't watch TV here? No. We still, to this day, do not have cable. We do not have Wi-Fi. Uh, I have a ladder you can use to go on the roof. You can cut firewood. I have a BB gun you can shoot things with, and uh, plenty of bicycles to work on, and even a few cars, and uh, some small engines. We also have mini bikes here, a whole fleet of them. My name is Joe Sullivan. People know me as Joe Sully, and I am a passionate collector of Columbia bikes that were made in Westfield, Massachusetts. So, how did you get into Westfield well, and Columbia bikes? It, it kind of happened by accident because uh, at Uncle Joe's house, we don't watch TV, we do stuff, and we ride a lot of bicycles, and uh, we're also into cars. So, I happened to find an original old car that I bought. We were out traveling around, and we had the bike rack down on a few bikes, and we drove by a sale, and there was this old Columbia bike out there, and we stopped and looked at it, and my son, who I think was nine at the time it fit him so I offered to buy it the guy was an antique dealer and he wanted some kind of premium for it but he looked at the old car we were driving and the fact that I had it full of kids with some bikes on the back and he sold it to me for a song and uh, we took it home and uh, fixed it up later learned that it was manufactured off the trail that we like to ride on I just happened to find more of them and just started collecting them. Ironically, I was able to find pairs. I had mostly pairs of bikes, boys and girls, two of almost everything, and it just kind of evolved that way. We would bring them home and uh, fix them up. The kids would work on them and I would work on them, and we would often load them up in the uh, van I had and go to the bike trail in mass, and uh, it just became a hobby of ours. It's still a hobby of mine, even though my kids drive automobiles now. What are some of your bike stories? Like you started with that one bike. How did it turn into a giant garage full of Westies? <laughs> it, it, it happened by accident. I, um, you know, we would, we would pretty much pick up any bike we could find, but we um, started finding more Columbias. And I, uh, I really was uh, passionate about the bikes that were made locally. And the rail trail that goes up by the old factory was this where the train went with the raw materials to the factory. And then the completed bikes again went down that same train corridor which is now the bike trail and it was just always something that was interesting to me and the kids when I would take them riding I would offer I would always give them what they call the lecture that the raw materials that made this bike came up this way and here we are you know and on and on and on of course you're sick of hearing it and uh, people had heard I just liked Columbia's and when they came across one they would offer it to me and if it was made in Westfield I would keep it and if it wasn't I'd pass it on where else were they made they were made in like everything now they're made elsewhere. I'm not sure where the factory went after Massachusetts. I know that the pre-Columbia, the Polk Company and all that had always operated in Connecticut and Hartford and so on and so forth. At that time in the mid-80s, they were having some financial issues and I'm not certain, but they may have stopped making bikes for a while at that time. And then like other companies may have used off-sourcing here and there. Not sure what they did as a company then, but I know that the Columbia factory there makes school desks now and that's it.
what has been your experience with collecting Westies? Well, I, I do have, you know, uh, recently decided to start liquidating the fleet. And as we sit here in my shop, there are a lot less bicycles in here than there were just, just months ago. I thought for sure I'd get more for them than uh, what, I, what I have been getting. The problem is, is that most people, you know, they just want a bike. And the worst nightmare for me, and this does wake me up in the middle of the night, is that a bike that I may sell to someone would end up in the front yard with flowers hanging off it. And uh, some of my bikes have actually been rescued from those circumstances <laughs> because um, kind of sad. So people are just looking for, you know, a cheap bike. I participated at the swap meet. I was very happy to find homes for my bike more than I was to sell them and get what they were worth. You know, uh, our lucky student got a great bike for great value. There was another fellow. I had some um, pink banana seed huffies. I had a pair of them because, you know, I have mostly pairs. And uh, he just wanted one, but I, I made him take them both. <laughs> he had to take them both, and he did. And then the um, some of the other bikes I sold, uh, people intended to use. I had some three speeds and some, some other bikes. Uh, I had a rally, English rally three speed, a collector bought who appreciated the bike. But most of them were just sold to people who needed, you know, uh, wanted just a basic bike. And uh, it was a shame to let some of them go that way, but I had to get rid of some of them. I mean, the bikes are beautiful. So we're, we're here in the man cave. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> and uh, there's, what, like 15, 20 bikes at in here least, right now? At least. Yeah. And a lot of them have fenders. Some of them have tanks. Mm -hmm. What are the tanks about? Well, the thing about the tank bikes, and this, this was shocking to me. I brought the second tank bike over here, which is a late 60s Westfield-made Columbia Fire Arrow that needs a restoration. I actually got it in a trade. It's not my type of how I clean them up or prepare them, but I, I thought for sure that someone would be interested in it and we're talking we were talking about value i mean a, a tank bike with all the original pieces and a seat that has beautiful upholstery that just needs you know just some cosmetics maybe some new tires and some new grease i thought for sure i'd get offers up to 200 dollars on that bike you know all day long but no one was really interested in it and i doubt i would have sold it for a hundred dollars if i wanted to which is kind of a shame but the the tanks is all about the pizzazz and the styling at that time and the good bikes have you know mechanicals in the tank such as like a doorbell or uh, that runs either mechanical or that is a battery operated thing and the coolest thing to have is lights now the lights were incandescent they had the little bulb they glowed more than they illuminated the tank bike that i did um, my typical restoration on i didn't uh first of all when i mess with stuff i keep the original pieces intact so i carefully removed the uh, battery holders and light bulbs i uh put leds back there you could ride that bike at night and see fun yeah, it's and it looks like it's still all dull and dingy like it was <laughs> but it just it just works much better and then the tank bikes have more value they have more style but they're really not getting any more money apparently so somebody could get a hand-built tank bike yes. made in america with upgrades on it yes. to make it more rideable than it was back in the day yes for $200 or less, and in some cases, maybe half that. Yeah. Well, the work I did on this other bike with the upgraded lights is just for, I'm keeping that bike forever. I'll yeah. be buried with it. <laughs> That's, the, you know, my flagship. You know, the other tank bike I haven't really done anything with because a lot of people want a project and they're going to want to do it their way. They may not want to have the, they may not want the uh, LEDs. They may want to have a original uh, headlight setup, original bike. Because, you know, as you said, they could go up and down in value. You know, there may be a day when that bike commands a high price and they may want to keep it original for that reason.
you watch American Pickers at all? I do. I, I do. love that show. Yeah, I have seen it, and uh, I see some of the bikes they pay big dollars for, and it's given me an insight as to people looking at my bikes because I'm like, why would you? You know, like it's something you're not going to ride. To me, there's no value in a bike you can't ride. Yeah. And some of the stuff they grab is unrideable and not to be ridden. They're going to restore it and sell it, and it's going to just sit on display. But it seems really uh, almost random. Yes. Which ones tend to command the money and which ones don't. Yeah. You know, like here's, I can almost say Schwinn's have a little bit better reputation for being a higher shelf bike. Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. Columbia's were pretty much a really good but basic yes. entry level bike. So I understand that there's a little bit of a differentiation between yep. the two that way. But in terms of what you can get if you wanted to start collecting mm. something that's 50 years old. Yeah. In terms of bikes and just be able to wrench on it and hold the original artifact you could get into this game with Westies yes for next to nothing right as opposed to some of the other more sought-after brands yeah you know and you still have an artifact that you're riding around right. and there's not the whole a lot of those bikes it seems like if you take the original wheels off you've pretty much done this horrible crime to humanity yes. according to some people whereas if you do the same thing to a Westie you've made it more rideable yeah. And, yeah. and a better rider the risk isn't there as much as it is right. with some of the other more elite yeah. brands that you would say so you've got some cool things that you do to make these more rideable because when people think of these bikes they think they're boat anchors a lot of times there was a surge in popularity with three-speed English bikes yes for a while with college kids yeah and they're still popular but then those college kids realized that they're kind of heavy yeah and if you live on a hilly campus yes maybe that's not the one for you especially yeah. if they had cheapy tires on it yeah the tires make a huge difference huge difference huge difference you've made these much more rideable I mean you're yeah. going and taking these suckers out on the rails to trails yeah. uh, through Simsbury and the Simsbury yeah. bike path so what kind of things do you do to to upgrade them to make them more rideable than they used to be well you you, you hit it right on the head tires is the number one thing. Most tires that come in the balloon tire size, which is the 26 by 225, or you know, up in that area, the two inch wide tires, are a low pressure tire. They're 40, 45 pounds. They don't roll very well. Most people opt for the cheap tires. I go with the, uh, the better quality tires. One of the first things they do is, you can see I got a mountain of them over here, is uh, I get a good quality tire. Those are a good quality tire. They're a 55 PSI max pressure but you can jack them up even higher. These, are, these aren't the World Tour. They are a, a, I'm not even sure what the brand is. I look at the PSI rating. The tires are really like the Michelin World, World Tour, like what I have here mm -hmm. in a white wall, because they have to be white wall. But those only come in the English size. So on my typical 26 inch balloon tire, first I'll, I'll put the good quality tire on and I'll go to a smaller size. I'll go to the 26 by 175 with higher pressure. So to reduce rolling resistance. The other thing is you can retrofit modern style alloy wheels which are lighter in weight and it's not just the weight savings it's when you start to pedal these bikes instead of getting that big heavy sticky slow tire rolling you have a much crisper acceleration the rims themselves as you recall holding it weigh basically a third of what the original rims weigh the other thing too is is that the original rims because of their age when you rebuild them a lot of those bits and pieces have you know 50 years of wear on them and you can only rebuild them so well 
you know, to be so efficient. You can use the best grease you can find. Many times you have to change the axles in them because they're bent. And uh, as you can see, you have to maintain an immense pile of junk <laughs> in order to salvage axles and pieces like this when you have a fleet of bikes because you, when you go into the bike shop with your coffee can full of mismatched stuff, nobody really wants to deal with you. So I maintain a bike. Especially the, the remaining bicycle shops that are around. Yes, Less and less ones. want to deal with you. Yeah, uh, I do have one in Plainville, Renaissance Cyclery. That guy's great. Uh, so I keep a bicycle boneyard as you saw on your way in here and I salvage most of my pieces from there. Bearings, axles, bits and pieces. The lightweight wheels make a great difference and in order to accommodate the different four offset I use the I put the lock washers outside the fork and in order to accommodate the dish the different axle diameter the uh, old Westies and the older bikes have a 3 8 inch axle I believe it's 3 8 and the new rims are have a much fatter axle although this is blasphemous and I'm, I have a confession for you I take these rims brand new out of the box I pull the lock nuts off and I attack them with a file I file flat into them because I'm not going to widen my fork uh, and compromise the, the original integrity of the bike. So when I came in today, he gave me two wheels with coaster brakes and two rear wheels. And one was the alloy rim, the new ones that he puts on. The other one, it had to be at least five to 10 pounds heavier is <laughs> yes. what it felt like. It was incredible. I don't know, that that was a particularly beefy looking hub that you had on that one that you yeah. showed me. This other one up here, so it has threads on it and where you tighten the nuts to hold the wheel onto the yep. frame and you go at that and you how far do you have to go down you just go down take the threads off a of part of the section well or? it's a little bit deeper than the threads i i made a jig and because you can see i've got a few retrofitted here basically got to trim a quarter inch off that axle oh boy so you really got to dig in there deep with the file and it's painful to buy a hundred dollar wheel set and take a file to it but that's what you got to do the difference this black bike here uh i rode that 30 miles its first time out with people with gear bikes and uh, i didn't die <laughs> that's good <laughs> and then this rat rod behind you this is an original firestone frame i'd hope to bring this to the swap meet and maybe enter it in the show or sell it but I didn't finish it at the time. I had seat pole issues. Someone had put the improper size seat pole in there and I needed my machine tool 17 year old son to help me correct it. I kept, uh, I like to keep things the way they are. I didn't paint it, it's just polished up. But on this bike, to make it go faster, this is a Speedster theme. I actually have a speedometer for this bike. I use the 26 and uh, one and three eighths size wheels, which is actually almost three inches more in diameter than an ordinary 26 inch balloon tire wheel. This increased wheel diameter combined with the 87 PSI Michelin World Tour tires makes that bike pretty darn fast for a uh, a single speed bike, you know, with the with the banana bars and banana seat, it's it's fun to ride. It's really quick. In fact, I'm gonna make you ride it before you leave here today. <laughs> so let's talk about that for a second. <laughs> so Sully, yes, you have a little bit of a reputation of being kind of the oddball on group rides sometimes. Maybe a little. <laughs> so there are people who show up with their road bikes and their yeah. hybrid bikes and stuff, and you have a banana seat. <laughs> 
or a cruiser, and you're keeping up with them. Uh, with How some, does that happen? With, with some groups, yeah, that is possible. That is possible. Um, and it's mostly because of all these casual-themed meetup groups that we have. And I have been riding my whole life. I'm a mountain biker. I used to do events. Um, I just did the Bloomin' Metric on a cross bike with a 50-count Munchkin Donuts on the back. I, I can ride. I, I like to ride, you know. So when I attend a, a ride that is a slower pace in order to um, you know get a workout myself and enjoy myself and uh, get some challenge out of it I simply ride a slower bike so that those people that are hammering away getting a good workout I'll be hammering away getting a good workout too So what's your favorite bicycle find? Go back to as being one of your greatest bicycle finds. Well, it actually happened pretty recently. As you know, I'm trying to sell some stuff. And I used to have a lot of Raleigh's and some road bikes and some this and some that. I thought I'd have value in the Westfield collection as a fleet of paired bikes. I had always wanted to do something as with a nonprofit or have some beneficial purpose for them, but it never came to fruition. So I started listing all my oddballs on Craigslist, which was a mistake. Because as you know, when we go to these swap meets and things, oftentimes we sure we move a few bikes, but then we come home with a few more. That Columbia over there, for example, uh, one of our favorite vintage bike guys uh, bartered me for that thing. A lot of these bikes have been garnered in trades. I was trying to sell something and somebody had something I wanted and, you know, bike people, they use bikes for money. Are we talking the red and white one there? This red and white one here, yeah. Because that's hot. I don't blame oh. you for that. That's a hot bike oh, right oh there. Oh my God. Well, I have four of them. <laughs> so describe that bike. It's it's a tank bike. It's that a is a, it. there is just something cool about the proportions of a 24 inch balloon tire Columbia bike. These bikes were made for kids. They have fancy paint jobs and swoopy lines and just the compactness if you were to look at a photograph of a 24 inch bike compared to a photograph of a 26 inch bike the 24 inch bike just has some proportions to it that just make it look so cool and you would think 24 inch bikes are normally not even discussed they're just right. like forget about them you yeah. know unless you're talking about a bmx cruiser bike, yes they're considered undesirable yes and so you've got this within the westies market now yeah. with 26 bikes you've got this further subdivision of 24 inch bikes right. meaning the 24 inch wheel and now that's a totally diamond in the rough you can still get these incredible finds yeah for not super lots of money and these bikes are fabulous i actually have i had six of them one of your classmates got one of them but this bike is a two-tone it's a red with white trim, it has a tank on it, it has a red and white seat, it's got a beautiful patina. It, it looks like your F-150, 1950s F-150 truck with the patina on it. It is a fabulous bike. And these 24-inch bikes are extremely challenging to ride. They're very heavy and very slow, and I have not been able to find alloy wheels for them. One of the reasons why I have so many 24-inch bikes is because I have a lot of kids riding. These, the, all these bikes, 
uh, with the exception of one I got from uh, Mr. Highwheel, are uh, were read, ridden quite a bit by my Irish brood in half the neighborhood because they were kids when we started doing this. I actually have some pretty rare 24-inch. I have a female tank bike with a doorbell on it and a headlight. Headlight's never been used. The battery card is still in there. It's amazing. Yeah. There was a chunk on one of the Facebook groups about collecting old bikes and they were having a debate that went on for you know a hundred comments or so where yep. people were talking about whether or not 24 inch what they call them, midweights yes 24 inch midweights would they become a thing or would they not be a yes. thing and were they worth money or were they not worth money I, i've never seen a talk about 24 inches yeah. before it go on for so many threads and yeah this guy posted a bike like yours yeah and people got vehemently on both sides of the issue yeah you know there are a lot of people with your side of the issue which are like these are incredible freaking bikes yes. they're just as interesting yeah the interest that that bike has yeah you could hang it on your wall but you want to ride it. Yeah. Oh, we were asking about my greatest bike find. Did you know that the Westfield Columbia Company made a 20-inch folding tricycle with a three-speed hub and a band brake on the front? Band? A band What brake. is a band brake? A band brake or a drum brake, basically. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, I okay. call it a band brake, but it's a drum brake on the front and a coaster brake on the back. Now, I had never heard this is the unicorn of Westfield Columbia bikes. The only other guy I found that had one was in Puerto Rico. So what happened was is, as is always, the problem you put a bunch of stuff on craigslist and somebody's interested in it and you start to talking and they ask you what you're into and you mistakenly tell them westfield columbia's and the guy is elated because he's got a pile of them so this guy from new york new york city rented a truck and came up here to buy a bunch of my three speeds. We were talking about three speeds, college kids. I had those listed. I had three speeds. I had Raleigh road bikes. I had a Swiss racing road bike. I had a, a lot of 27 inch road bikes. And I had all these oddball things I'd put on Craigslist. So this fella comes up here with a box truck. And I told him, I want money, dude. I'm not taking any trades. Sure, he says, sure. Shows up with a box truck. What does he have inside? That black bike that I love that I'm keeping till I die. <laughs> that teal bike that I also love, that is the mate to that one. They're both early 60s Westfield Columbias. I did my best work on those with the alloy wheels, the high pressure tires, and the whole nine yards. So I got those two bikes. And I also got a 20 inch Columbia folding trike in like new condition. It would be here right now, except my 80 year old aunt is camping in Hamanasset this weekend. We do not want her on her two wheeler anymore. Luckily she shrank a few inches in her old age and her bike is too tall for her now. So uh, Arlene, eh, that bike doesn't fit you anymore. She's riding the tricycle at the campground this weekend. I wish I had it here for you to see it. That would be my greatest bike score ever because I got rid of all the stuff I wasn't passionate about and I ended up getting two bikes that I'm very passionate about that I'm going to keep indefinitely. They're a match pair. And that three-speed trike is going to find a home with either an 80-year-old woman or uh, someone special needs who would benefit from having a trike. And as a valuable bike, it's not even in their catalog. I could find nothing about this bike. And it is in pristine condition. The problem is, I did try to sell it, but the problem is people who want a trike can go down, as you said, to the box store and buy one for $200. Someone who wants a trike just wants a trike. 
they don't necessarily want a classic rare bike like 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 this bike but if there is someone out there who may be special needs who is passionate about collectible bikes i have the bike for you it's a 20 inch folding trike made in westfield massachusetts and it will outlive us all yes it, it, it's in great shape it's in great shape and it, it the way it's assembled it has giant wing nuts that hold the back wheels on it has a, a three-speed hub that is disconnected from the, it has a, a unique drivetrain with a three-speed hub a twist shifter it's a coaster brake and the on the top of the stem it has a big spin-off knob so you can take the bars off and then there's a breakaway in the center of the frame and it's got an enormous basket on the back you can probably carry quite a quite a few bags of groceries in there and it, it rides beautifully weird repair stories or anything like a weird thing you found inside a bike uh you know it not really well i'll tell you this bike over here there's a girls columbia the one i told you about with the tank and the doorbell that actually had a cadet uh speedometer on it it really hurts me to break up original bikes when I got that bike, that is a 50s, late 50s, 24-inch bike. It has a rack on it. The rack is all bent up. It's that bike's seen a lot of a lot of use. And I've changed the pedals on it. And somewhere in one of these toolboxes, I have the original pedals. And the way the bike is worn, the pedals were worn clear through in the middle. The center of the pedal was worn. The tread right down to the spindle right down to the spindle. The speedometer was stuck at 499 miles. Stop working. Uh, I've, uh, I've since taken it off and I was trying to repair it for this Speedster project, but it, it needs a rebuild and I'm not familiar with them. So it's one of those special rainy day projects for me. So to make a long story short, after carefully looking at this bike, the tires were worn down on the threads. Some girl in the 50s put 500 miles on that bike. If you look at the seat stay, the seat stay is worn as if I can just imagine a girl in the late 50s with a stack of books lashed onto that rack, <clears throat> riding the crap out of that bike with heeled shoes on, wearing the pedals clear through the middle, and the way the paint is worn, you would almost imagine a skirt flapping against that thing for all those miles. So that bike to me is, you know, someone, some young woman in the 50s, somebody got her that bike loaded, souped the nuts with the speedometer, the doorbell, and the light, and she rode the <laughs> out of it. <laughs> that to me is one of the one of the coolest things, you know. So many times we get bikes, and they are they were bought and put in a garage, and you're amazed at the lack of use. Yeah. And yet, when you find a bike like that yeah. that somebody loved to ride so much, yeah. It, it makes you feel good either way. Yeah. You feel good if the parts are like new because all you gotta do is clean them. And you feel good if the parts are like so unbelievably used because yeah. you're like holding something that somebody rode the heck yeah. out of and you can still bring it back to life which oh, is replacing yeah. a few yeah. of the bits. Yeah. You and I both like to restore bikes and we tend to want to err on the side of keeping it original because yeah. it's only original once. Right. And yet there are sometimes some upgrades that are yep. desperately needed to make the bike rideable. Yeah. So we talked about replacing the old wheels with alloy wheels. Yeah. Incidentally, uh, putting the tires on, I keep putting the wheels. Better. They're tagged over here. I keep all the original pieces. Well, that's pieces. what I wanted to ask you yes. about. Is what's wrong with us that yeah. we can't just rip the band-aid 
Yes. Put the new part on yeah. and let that be its new life. Yeah. What What's going on inside of our heads? Man? You know, it, it's so funny you mentioned that. I mean, when... when Because uh, there's something about people like us. Like, yeah. if you got eight of us in a room, yeah. we probably all keep track yes. of what seat post you took out because, well, it would, because it didn't work. But you still took it out yes. because it was the original seat post right. or it was the original pedals that yes. were too noisy. So yeah. you put on nicer new riding pedals. But you kept the old one. Right. What? What is... So... What, is it an illness? It is an illness. <laughs> I'd like to uh, put a uh, speaker system in one of these tank-like bikes. That one doesn't have room. I already tried it on that one. <laughs> but I'm not going to cut holes in it. You'll notice the plunger switch for the light is uses the existing hole. I'm not going to... And I even left the hardware from the old switch is still in there. And the all the bits and pieces are taped up over there with the original wheels. They'll go in my attic. <laughs> no, I like I like the lights where there's one on either side of the head too. Yes. It makes it look like a robot face. Yes. And that that's the intent. Yeah. That's the intent. Alright. Well thank you very much. Hey, thanks for coming by. thing you've seen on the side of the road or on the side of the trail while you're riding oh the weirdest thing i have ever seen jeez there's lots of weird stuff on the side of the trail <laughs> i think in fact i brought this up today we were riding north of floydville road for those of you who don't know the we have a lot of bike trails here that travel deep into massachusetts up past the old factory in massachusetts and they they often obstruct the trail with these bollard poles which of course everybody crashes into and, and a cattle gate. They oddly had this cattle-looking gate. And I could never understand, I witnessed somebody plow into it full tilt one day, and I could never understand how this guy didn't see the gate. Well, today we were riding north, and I, I couldn't see the gate. And I couldn't see it because this runs adjacent to a tobacco field where the tobacco barns are, and it was just the way the light was, and it was odd. I knew the gate was there, but I'm riding up and I'm thinking, the gate's not there you know but of course as it got really close you could see it it was just a, an odd effect it's it's a uh, galvanized metal gate that's painted green but you know of course the, some of the paint is worn off you know from the rain and so on but i was amazed at how i i knew it was there but i couldn't see it until i was right on top of it and when this had happened we were riding south with the casual bike group as you know in front of the bike up and um this fella, he had like a, um, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s uh, roadish bike, like a real 10 or 12 speed, you know, with butted frame, and, you know, I don't know what kind of bike it was, but he plotted that gate so hard, he bent that fork right over, tackled the front wheel, that guy was, he just, and I, I remember thinking, this guy's got to be blind or crazy, how do we... So today, that is the weirdest thing I've seen, is the gate that you can't see, it's an optical illusion, and now I understand fully how that guy managed to plow into that gate going 10, 15 miles an hour. <laughs> the amazing magic gate. Yeah. Now you see it, now you don't. Yeah, it was, it was that time of day, I mean, it was probably about, um, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock we were coming up on it, but you really, you really couldn't see it, it was the way the light was coming out of the field, or I, I, I it was just the weirdest thing. I have a group that I ride with, and when they started riding uh, on the trails, they each 
named the gates after the person who crashed into them. Yes. So we kind of keep track of our progress by which gate we're at. Yeah. Are we at Dan's <laughs> gate? Yeah. <laughs> that Dan crashed into, yes. or are we at another gate? Yeah. Yeah. One of the goals of the podcast is to make connections between all different types of cyclists around the world. If you talk to them, you'd find out that a lot of them have the same recurring dream. Maybe it's a daydream, maybe it's an actual dream. But at one point, they have this epiphany. What if we just put bikes everywhere? What would the world be like if we just took 200 bikes and put them into our town or a thousand bikes and put them into our city? Now this dream isn't new. It's been done at college campuses, businesses, and some towns have tried it as well. Sometimes it's free, sometimes you have to pay, but one place in the world did it big time. We have uh, 30,000 bikes uh, in uh, 700 square kilometers of Singapore. We're all about making bike sharing in Singapore greener, smarter, and uh, well-loved. Hi, I'm uh, Raymond Yeo from uh, Singapore. This is my connection to bike sharing. I actually have an Instagram feed about bike sharing, and it's uh, bikesharing.sg. We have 29, 30,000 bikes in uh, 700 square kilometers of Singapore. There are currently four bike sharing companies. The dominant or the one with the largest fleet is uh, O-Bike and uh, O-Bike is uh, homegrown. We have uh, two from China, Mobike and Ofo, as well as one company with, well, I think, perhaps a few hundred bikes and uh, they're called G-Bikes. So yeah. do you have to pay for a bike if you want to ride a bike or are there just bikes everywhere? The going rate is 50 cents for 15 minutes, right? So that's the average rate, I suppose. But to incentivize riders, most companies have would designate days uh, where riders can uh, ride for free, their users can ride for free. So recently, Singapore celebrated its 52nd birthday. So all four companies offered free rides. You know, ranging from for, for ranging from a day to the entire month of August. So if I wake up in the morning and I want to ride a bike, yeah. what does that look like? So I get yeah. out of bed, I walk out the door, where are the bikes to get? Okay, so if you are a shared bike user, you would have uh, installed uh, the application uh, on your phone. It's not the same application for all four companies, uh, but the general idea is the same. You locate the bike using the app, Right. If you are aware that uh, there are bikes of said company uh, in the vicinity of your home, you can make your way there. And once you are next to the bike, you unlock the bike uh, with the help of the application. And uh, once your bike is unlocked, and uh, you should actually check 
if the bike is in good condition before you you uh, unlock it, right? So that's actually, uh, I believe, company policy for all four companies, right? And off you go. It's uh, technically as simple as that. Believe me when I say there are more than enough shared bikes in uh, Singapore. first thing that caught my eye about Raymond's feed was the Bikes in Trouble section, where he would take and do a portrait of a bike that was obviously in some type of distress. I love your Instagram account, where you find a bike and then you talk about its number like the number is a name. Poor this bike, look what happened to this. Or, you know, there was a bike in the canal. There was a bike that had its handlebars turned around. So you find bikes that are not ready to ride. Can you tell me a couple of examples of that? It's not like I uh, go around looking for them uh, because I'm a cycling enthusiast as well. So I ride around town or my neighborhood uh, on my foldable bike. And when I come across a bike in trouble or in bad shape, I would take out my phone and, and take a picture. So sometimes it's as easy as that. These days, it's even easier because I've got followers right on Instagram and I've reached out to them by text over Instagram and I encourage them to send me pictures of bikes they've come across, you know, that are in trouble. This is me crowdsourcing uh, for, for pictures, for content. And in doing so, I, I build a community. I'm just one man, one bike outfit, right? So I call myself an, an advocate, a community advocate. Uh, the followers send me pictures. They, they, in a way, come on board. It's not just me, it's us. So one memorable example of a bike in trouble would be an Ofo that has been painted purple. So Ofos are all yellow, right? So someone has actually spray painted it to, I guess, conceal the 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 identity or, or the the owner of the bike, right? Taken this bike for, I guess, uh, quite a few rides, and uh, before. Uh, abandoning it, well, I think it's abandoned because uh, it has no saddle, right? So I wonder, you know, did the saddle fall off or did, uh, did it, uh, was it, I don't know, vandalized? Okay, so, so there's some mysteries, I guess, whenever I encounter a bike like that. I wonder, but I, I really don't know what uh, has actually happened to it. It makes the imagination roll, you know. When you see an abandoned bike with uh, some things happen to it, you always wonder, what the heck is the story there? You know, what happened to it? What's the weirdest place yeah. you've ever seen a share bike? Um, well, I would say um, in the cemetery. Uh, in this uh, cemetery that's, that's uh, facing uh, redevelopment. So in Singapore, we have a cemetery called uh, Bukit Brown, uh, but it's no longer active, as in bodies are no longer buried there. Okay, uh, But there are graves there, and I guess once in a while, 
uh, family and friends would come to, to visit these graves, right? So I participated in uh, a walk in Bukit Brown and uh, saw a shed bike, uh, an old bike there. So no one in, in the tour that I was in had ridden it there, right? So I don't know who wrote it there, but I imagine it's probably still there. And, and my uh, tour took place, well, two weeks ago. So I, I think it's still in the cemetery. So, so that's, the, that's the problem, you see. So if you ride a shared bike to a certain spot and no one rides it away, it stays there. And shared bikes can be found under flyovers in Singapore. Shared bikes can be found clustered around a bus stop, like maybe 10 to 15 of them. Uh, shared bikes can be found at the ground level of apartment blocks, so 5 to 10 of them. And uh, this is something that you can see with regular frequency all around Singapore. Shared bike clustering in areas uh, where there is no designated parking available. I love looking at the pictures of bikes in trouble and all the shared bikes that are not in trouble on your website. If people want to go check out and see all of the goings on with the 29 to 30,000 bikes in Singapore, what is your Instagram account again for everybody? Oh, my Instagram account is at bikesharing.sg. But thanks for sharing some stories about yes. bike sharing in Singapore. I really appreciate it, and I no, will no, talk no. to you again soon. Yeah, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much. While the Bike Karma Podcast encourages you to reach beyond your comfort zone, we are a show about stories, not advice. Act on your own. To be legally clear, we are not encouraging you to try and get another 500 miles out of those really old tires, cycle across Alaska without a pump or multi-tool, bring your fat bike to a Weight Watchers meeting just because you think it would be funny, or to drill holes in your group ride Nemesis's seat tube just to be sure there isn't a motor in there. We are saying no, no to all that. Before trying anything new, ever, you should clearly think about whether or not that should be a good idea. Consult your doctor. Consult their doctor. Consult an independent and impartial third doctor. And then run all that by the nurse, because nurses are the ones who know what's up. If you don't want to have to worry about all that, you could just leave a nice review on iTunes or any other service. Follow us on social media or share the show with your friends. That should be totally safe. Unless, of course, you're also doing Flatland BMX freestyle tricks for the very first time on your 50th birthday. In which case, you are on your own, sir. Though we'd like to interview you if you survive. So I'm lucky enough to have a pretty nice home shop. I got lots of parts, I got lots of bikes, I got lots of tools. I can invite people over, I got a couple work stands. It looks kind of like a make-believe bike shop. And sometimes when I have people over, they say, oh, 
Your dream must be to, to work in or to open up a bike shop when you get older and when you retire. And I look at them and I very kindly say, no, I do not. Because I know exactly how crazy the game is to have a successful bike shop. And hats off to people who are able to pull it off because you need a heck of a good business plan and you need a lot of luck as well. I've seen horrible things happen at bike shops to the owners of the bike shops, to the people that work there. I remember once there was a guy and he came in with a really high-end road bike and he goes, uh, could you just give me an estimate? What do you think is gonna have to get done to this? So the guy comes out, he takes about five, 10 minutes, looks at what's going on and he says, okay, you're gonna need new this, new this, and new this. We could probably do it for about $300. And he goes, the guy actually takes out his phone right there and starts looking up the stuff and he goes, okay, I'll have to think about it and walked out the store simultaneously ordering the stuff online. It's insane how people are treated in this business. You could be the nicest bike shop owner and you'll have to deal with people like that periodically. Now there's a lot of good people out there who will come in and pay you to fix a flat tire and there's a lot of people who have really cool old bikes who don't want to be taken over the coals so you can help out. But to turn a profit to put food on the table, it is challenging in this game. So hats off to all the bike shops out there who are able to be nice, do some good in the world and also keep food on the table hats off to you why are a lot of these bike shops gone well part of it is due to the internet part of it is due to the changing face of main street usa uh, in the uk they would call it the high street it's happened to main street over time i go back to my hometown and there's tons of empty stores there the only stores there are a pawn shop a tattoo parlor and a bar so you can pawn something to get a tattoo and then go tell people about it over a beer but there's nothing else in that town and there used to be two bike shops two movie theaters tons of restaurants and department stores grocery stores butcher all that stuff and now it's not so sometimes we're lucky enough some of those main streets across the United States were lucky enough to have a second wind to catch fire and start to come back sometimes you'll see a bike store come back or you might even see a bike store that has survived that whole time passed from person to person there's one like that up in northern new england so when i went to saranac lake new york on a family vacation this year it's a beautiful little town the architecture is from that period of main street history and it's got tons of nooks and crannies as you walk around the old architecture is awesome and there's a lot of fun shops there and it seems to be on the upswing i see that there's a sign for a bike shop but it's not quite open yet so i found the owner around the back and had a smaller shop and he is taking it to the front of Main Street again where there hasn't been a bike shop since 2008. So I talked to him about what it's like to bring that iconic player back into a community. Hi, I'm John Diamond. I own Human Power Planet Earth Bicycle Shop here in Saranac Lake. We really believe in giving bikes a second and a third life. We specialize in repairs. We like to refurbish bikes. We're in transition right now and real excited about uh, bringing our new retail sales only store onto Main Street, 77 Main Street. We'll have new bikes and used bikes for sale on the showroom floor and all the accessories. Our uh, service area will still be in the back of the building and although it's the same building, it has a different address, that's 52 Dorsey Street. We'll have rentals and our full service there. We're pretty excited 
So the cool thing about Old Main Street is that you can never build buildings like this anymore. We walked out of the repair end on the back side, which is next to a river. It's beautiful, little nooks and crannies. We walked up an alleyway. The shutters in the alleyway looked like they were off of an ironclad battleship from the Civil War. He explained to me how the buildings used to be a bank, and then we walked around to find a nice coffee house right next to the storefront on Main. So Saranac, am I saying it right? Saranac Lake, yeah. Saranac, Saranac. Saranac is a beautiful little town. Oh my I mean, gosh. the building fronts are amazing. I noticed some of them are empty. Yep. Like so many other main streets in the United States, they've gone through some hard times with businesses closing. There's yep. a lot of just shut down in terms of being businesses and have gone residential as you go some of the side streets. When did Saranac lose its bicycle shop, the old one? That was 2008 and it was during the recession. I don't know that it was so much that or if uh, the owner saw the writing on the wall. He did have another gig, uh, I think it was a commercial fisherman that he did. I think it was time for him to move on. He was 2008, all, 2008. kind of made that decision easy for yeah, people. Probably yeah, probably made it easy. Uh, yeah. He uh, continue, did and continues to do uh, tie-dye shirts like at a really high level and it was more at a commercial level. So, But it did leave a big vacuum and big shoes to fill. He did an excellent job for the community and as we started coming in uh, we saw a lot of the bikes that came from that shop and we were really happy to keep them running strong the people really loved them we're trying to carry on that really good tradition that bark eater bicycles in this case had we had a bike shop in our town too and periodically you get a bike to refurbish you know you're into bringing back the old bikes to life too because they are serviceable for a century or so yes. as long as they're taken care of and you see those old stickers from the old bike shops that are no longer there and your your heart your heart softens a little bit when you see them but you came in and you were coming from the speed skating world but also had a foot in the the bicycle repair world for a while so when that vacuum was there what made you say i'm going to be the guy to bring a bike shop back i always worked in bike shops since i was 18. for a segment in my life i did have a speed skate shop but in my heart i was always you know i always went back to the bicycles I just was out of it for probably 11 years. People literally just asked me to fix their bikes. They remembered me from working in Lake Placid at the two other bike shops there. And they said, hey, can you, can you fix my bike? It needs a tune-up. And so I was very fortunate to be able to start out that way. It was only by people that asked me and by appointment. And then it just sort of, the ball kept rolling. Uh, we felt there was a need here and a vacuum to be filled. You've got quite the Venn diagram going on here with two uh, overlapping circles of groups. I mean, you've got Lake Placid, where you have Olympian-level, world-class athletes. Mm -hmm. And then you've got just normal people who want to ride bikes as well. Yeah, and you know what? They're all cyclists. In my heart, at one point, I was kind of an elite athlete, so I really do like the $15,000, you know, road bikes and stuff like that. But I believe just as much and taking 25-year-old bikes that are rusted and been in the barn and refurbishing them and making them run. And these people are gonna, these people are gonna use them to get to work, to get to school. They literally need them to get around. It's a very bikeable town, as you may have noticed. Mm -hmm. This is really easy to commute around here. In my case, I feel like I'm fortunate, although there's different Venn diagrams, I feel like they're on a globe and I feel like we wanna help the whole globe. You can't help every single person and there are places that uh, you know help some people in a better way than we can. But if we can help them out, we do it. 
It's at this point a customer comes in and John, being a good business person, knows that that's the priority. So he breaks off the conversation to help. Hey. Hi. Take your time, look around. We're not open yet. I, well, I you're not open yet. You. Yes, I'm Bill. Bill, yes. Huh? John. 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 Oh, my God. But we're doing yeah. a little interview here. Were you thinking about new bikes or just no, wanted to get I some need to rent reading? a bike for a day for two kids. And what a fitting place to end this segment as we go into the third century of bicycle shops in America with a special dedication to all the folks out there who run those local bike shops for all the right reasons. You know, this is what you're here for. Right? Yeah, so this yeah. is great. Um, I have these sizes. Uh, I don't, ideally they'd have 24 or a small size mountain bike and I really appreciate you checking with me. on the oldest continuously running ferry in the United States. And I'm on my bicycle, made my way over to the Glastonbury side of the Connecticut River. And I missed the ferry by a couple minutes the first time, so I've been doing loops in the ferry park over here, which is really nice little loop. But people walking their dogs, trying to save that extra mileage. And it's just about ready to make its way over to the other side. So here I go, I'm gonna go get into the lineup now. Got three cars lined up. You get alongside of them. If you could bike on water, then you could be across the Connecticut River in about a minute, probably less. But most people can't do that. If you want to come check out the ferry, it only runs three out of four seasons during the year. Want me to get on first? Yes, I do. All right. Want to invite me on first, yep. Have a seat and get your bicycle up over that rail. You got it. Many cyclists use the ferry, mostly because it's kind of cool to do. There's also a ferry to ferry tour that happens annually, and that's pretty popular where you go over this ferry and another one further downstream. The oldest ferry in the country is kind of like a barge that has a tugboat on the side of it. It can fit about three cars and a whole mess of bikes. Sometimes parents go to the park on either side and take their kids across on a fun trip. for bicycles? Good luck. Alright. Thank you very much. You got one sec? What do you got? Can I ask you a couple of questions about bikes in the ferry? Fire away. Alright, so is it okay for me to use voice on the podcast? I don't know if it is or not, but go ahead and fire away anyway. Yeah, right. I'm not giving you my name, so you don't know who I am. So That's fine. fire away. Just a voice over the podcast. Alright, um, so how, how many bikes come over? Is it common? 
is very common. This is the only way across the river uh, other than the Aragone Bridge, which is about 10 miles south of here. The Putnam Bridge, uh, uh, maybe about five, six miles north of here, but it's dangerous. It's a, re a regular highway. There is no sidewalk. So, yeah, it's very common. Did you ever work the double ferry tour with all the bikes that go from I ferry I have when I was down working on the other ferry, yes. Yeah, what, sure what was that like? If they had their, if they had it together and everybody had their fare together, and some other bike tours that we've done before, somebody would come down and let's say there's a hundred bikes, they'd come down with a two hundred dollar check, you know, and that way, boom, done. Because when people have just two dollars, you know, on them, or we got to make change, that that's a pain. It would go a long way if everybody had the exact fare. Uh, yeah, we we've had. There's a group that comes across that uh, uh, for ALS, for HIV, and. and uh, most of those are organized. That group goes from, I think, Boston down to New York. But we got a guy that, uh, that works in Rocky Hill and lives in uh, East Hampton that's here every day. Takes, takes the uh, boat every day both ways. That's cool. Yeah. And how old is the ferry? How long has it been running? It's been a ferry here since 1650. 1650, wow. <laughs> this current configuration, 1955. Wow. Alright, so there's my trip across the Connecticut River on the oldest ferry in the country. And now, to get home and make dinner. Thank you. Well, that's done with another episode of Bike Karma. Thanks for coming along for the ride. I'd also like to thank Raymond Yeo from Singapore, John Diamond from up in Saranac, Joe Sully from right here in Connecticut, and the unnamed ferryman. Special thanks to Uncle the Podcast and John and Aaron. Thank you very much for having me on the other day. You should go check their podcast out. It's fun. And they've given me permission to use a little part of it in the next episode. So stay tuned for that. Online, I want to thank Dmar Lu and Joe 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 LOL and John2001 for leaving nice reviews and Wesley Grossman, Justin Opman, Hanoush, Greg E9, and Rob Rides Bikes for following. Special shout outs to Kevin the Weathersfield Turkey who gives me a reason to ride around looking for him. He's going to be in the next episode too. Also, big thanks to all the people in my bicycle restoration and repair class. I had a great time with you guys and hope that you continue on. Thanks to all the folks out there waiting patiently to be interviewed and or waiting for their interviews to be edited in future episodes. I really do appreciate your patience with that. I'm trying to get out one a month. Thanks to the bike shops and coffee shops that have put out stickers for the show. I appreciate it. And once again, Keller Glass and Mobjack Music for the beautiful music that you hear in the background of the beginning and closing of the show. Big thank you to Taryn, who also composed some of the music there and was going to compose more until he broke his arm. Bike Karma Podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. 
This includes the awesome cat logo of Mr. Munchnik drawn by my daughter. All rights including copyrights, trademarks, etc, etc are reserved. Thank you, dear listeners, for coming along for the ride with me. I really appreciate it. You can contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com if you have any comments or ideas for the show. Till next time, keep pedaling and keep it wheel. I feel like I'm